It's been 30 years since the close of chapter 2. The focus now is no longer on the villages of Bethlehem or Nazareth. Now we're in the Judean wilderness where we hear the solemn words of Israel's last and perhaps greatest Old Testament prophet. Scripture describes John as a rather unusual man. We read it. Uh, we'll get into it and we'll look at it in just a second. But the crowds flocked to the desert to hear his message. This is the same John who leapt for joy in his mother's womb when Mary, the mother of Jesus, uh, came to stay and, and uh, sounded her greeting. He's now a man prophesying in the desert with a simple message of repentance and preparation for the coming King of Israel. Sometime later, Jesus would call John uh, more than a prophet. And later, and then also say of him that uh, there is none greater born of women. John's message is rather simple. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John recognized that the coming of Israel's king was close and that he had been chosen by God to prepare the way for his arrival. Now, from what we understand from other passages, namely John's Gospel, as we read uh, about uh, more, more that happened to do with this passage, it's, it's very likely that John did not understand fully what Jesus was doing, and maybe for a time even who Jesus actually was. But though he may not have understood the full meaning and significance of things like the Messiah and the Kingdom of Heaven, he did recognize that the people at that time were not ready for it, and he preached of their need to turn back to God and prepare themselves for the coming King. In its most literal sense, the word repent means to think differently. A lot of times, especially in our culture today, we associate repentance with a, a changing of deeds, it's a, a doing something different. But really, at its, at its most literal form, in its most literal meaning, to repent simply means to change your mind about something. But, as we see John elaborate in his message, we see that the true repentance takes a simple change of mind to a much deeper level. Isaiah had prophesied of John's coming when he wrote in uh, chapter 40 of his, of his book, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Once again, Matthew makes an Old Testament connection uh, from here, uh, from Old Testament prophecy to its fulfillment here as what we see in the New Testament. Uh, Craig Blumberg wrote, just as roads were often repaired in the ancient world in preparation for royalty traveling on them, so John calls his listeners to rebuild highways of holiness. Or in other words, to return to moral living in preparation for God's coming in Jesus. And John now urges the crowds to remove whatever will hinder them from receiving the Messiah whenever He comes. The Scriptures tell us some interesting things about John. We'll look at them a little more closely tonight. But uh, John uh, had a, an unusual diet. And from uh, 21st century culture, an unusual uh, wardrobe. Uh, he ate locusts and wild honey. This is, uh, like I said, this is unusual to us, but this is just a very common food for someone who dwell in the desert. Uh, and to mention that he wore clothes of camel's hair and leather. It says leather girdle there, and, and uh, uh, you're thinking of the same girdle that uh, I'm thinking of when you say girdle. That's not the right girdle, okay? Uh, it's a belt, okay? Uh, he was a man, not a woman. And so he was wearing, uh, he was wearing, he wore leather belt and camel's hair clothes. 
But this wardrobe here identified him as a prophet. Zechariah wrote uh, uh, of this type of clothing, and he kind of described it as the unofficial uniform of the prophet. And so uh, when John came wearing these clothes, it was uh, indicative of his mission. But Matthew includes John's wardrobe and diet for another reason. John's appearance evoked images of another prophet from a bygone era, namely Elijah. Though a prophet from several generations past, it was generally believed that Elijah would come back, either literally or in a figurative version of himself. And Elijah would come to announce the arrival of Messiah. And for several hundred years, God's voice was silent in Israel. It seems as if God was speaking to people every other day as we go through the Old Testament, but in that gap of about 300 to 400 years between the end of Malachi and the beginning of Matthew, God's voice has been silent. No prophet has had new news to share with God's people. And it was believed that the forerunner, or this second Elijah, would usher in the arrival of the Christ. Many heard and believed John's message as we read there, his message of repentance. Verse 6 tells us there that they came confessing their sins. And as an outward sign of their repentance, they were baptized by John in the Jordan River. John's message of fame spread and his name and, and, and message began to go throughout. Notice there it says in verse number, verse number five that Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region round about Jordan. So this is a very widespread area and his message and his fame reaches the ears of the religious elite. Many Pharisees and Sadducees took notice of John and whether genuinely interested in his message or simply amused at this itinerant preacher, uh, they came to the Jordan where John was baptizing people. Pharisees and Sadducees are pretty much polar opposites of each other politically and spiritually. We have uh, Pharisees, uh, liberal in their theology. They would take the law that God had specifically given. They would add oral tradition and uh, some sort of, to sort of fence, them, uh, fence the, uh, the law with their oral tradition, but they elevated their traditions, their oral traditions, uh, to the same level and importance and significance as the Scriptures. On the other hand, Sadducees uh, were religious conservatives. They didn't take so many liberties uh, with the Scriptures, but at the same time, they did not believe in things that uh, the Old Testament did not specifically say. For instance, uh, the New Testament tells us that uh, they did not believe in the possibility of a bodily resurrection. Pharisees were popular among the common people, while Sadducees were a sort of priestly aristocracy. And a brief glance through the New Testament will show that these two groups, these are two of the three main groups, religious groups in Israel, these two groups caused great trouble for both Jesus and the early church. And it's not hard to determine their intention here for being at John's baptism service. John was not intimidated. Read this, with the, uh, read this again with me there in verse number um, 7 there. This is, they didn't even get a, a word in. They're just standing on the edge of the shore. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, Generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He calls them generation of vipers, alluding to their danger to others by poisoning them with unscriptural teaching and requirements. 
Later, Jesus would use the same language. I think Kim read it uh, for us there. Matthew 12, he'll say it again in Matthew 23. And sarcastically, John is asking them, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Saying, it wasn't me. It wasn't through my message that you've come today. Uh, kind of highlighting the fact that they are unrepentant. And he boldly declared that they have an appearance of religion, but they lack the fruit of repentance. And as if he already knows how they're going to respond to that, he continues by saying that having Abraham as their father is not good enough. Picture John speaking to them and glancing down at the ground and seeing the rocks uh, scattered around at their feet. And he says, don't think that you're right with God simply because Abraham is your forefather. God is able to give Abraham children by these stones. You're not that special. It's the one who made you is the one who is special. And John is saying that you're not important because Abraham is your father. Neither your culture nor your customs can replace repentance toward God. He continues, even now the axe lies at the root of the tree, showing the imminent judgment on those who will not turn to God. There must be repentance and specifically the fruit of that or else judgment will come this he says not only for the the sake of those religious leaders the pharisees and the sadducees but also for the benefit of the whole crowd to hear specifically that they are vipers that they are ones who are going to poison god's people and lead them away from the truth but also that the the, the fruit of repentance is is a responsibility for all the people, not just the people to whom he is speaking. And what John is saying there is that God is not satisfied with lip service. He knows the condition of our heart. Isaiah wrote earlier, these people draw near me with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. And at best, Isaiah is describing that their worship had become perfunctory and dispassionate, very mechanical. And John declares that each person, Jew or Gentile alike, prophet, or common man, must repent and show the fruit of a true change of mind toward God. John Calvin wrote, Repentance is an inward matter, which has its seat in the heart and soul, but afterward yields its fruit in a change of life. This is the sentiment that John wants his audience to understand. R.C. Sproul also wrote, We have not truly turned from sin if our lives are unchanged. It's exactly what James meant when he wrote, uh, later on, that faith without works is dead. I like this. I was reading a little bit of uh, John Calvin's uh, writings this uh, this uh, week, and and uh, it's it's just interesting. My my attention is always grabbed when uh, uh, a wise, austere man uses the word stupid, and he says, "None are more stupid than hypocrites who deceive themselves and others by the outward mask of holiness." While God thunders on all sides against the whole world, they construct a refuge for themselves in their own deceitful fancy, for they are convinced that they have nothing to do with the judgment of God. You see, God knows our hearts, and He's neither fooled nor satisfied with our empty religious activities, even though we might be. John continues his appeal to the crowd now. He says, I baptize with water for repentance, but one is coming much mightier and much worthier than I. If you think much of me and the crowds did, know that I am not even worthy to carry his shoes. In those days, 
to carry the master's shoes was the job assigned to the non-Jewish slaves because that would make one unclean. And what John is essentially saying here is that I'm not even worthy to be the slave that carries his shoes. I'm not even that high up on the totem pole when it comes to the Messiah, whoever this Messiah may be. He continues, He who comes after me will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now we know from Acts number 1 what John what, what that actually meant about being uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But what did John mean about the baptism with fire? There's actually uh, some, some question on what this actually means. I've got at least two possible meanings here uh, that I'll share with you. The first is that the fire is judgment for those who do not believe or do not repent. And then the second option here is that the fire is a symbol of purging and testing for those who do believe. Much like when Jesus said in John 15:2 that every branch in me that bears fruit, he purges so that it will bring forth more fruit. Jesus, uh, whichever meaning was intended, it is very clear in the following statements that John makes that those who do not believe or repent will be judged by fire. John paints an interesting picture here of a king carrying a winnowing fork to a threshing floor ready to separate his wheat from the chaff. We'll look at that a little more closely tonight. The wheat here will be stored in the barn, but the chaff will be burned with unquenchable fire. Verse 13 transitions us to another visitor at John's baptism. Jesus Himself now approaches John and requests to be baptized by Him. The last time we read of Jesus, He was a baby being carried off into Nazareth from Egypt under cover of darkness and uh, out, of the, uh, out of the spotlight of the king and those who would seek His life. Now He approaches as a grown man 30 years later, ready to begin His earthly ministry. And John is probably familiar with Jesus, their cousins. And at the very least, he knows that he's an extremely righteous man. John 1.31, when John, the Gospel of John, the, the disciple John, not John the Baptist, uh, seems to indicate that John the Baptist did not yet know exactly who Jesus was. And so it's kind of, it's a little unclear as to when John finally put the, connected the dots. But John 1.31 uh, seems to indicate that. So we read that when Jesus comes to be baptized by John, John hesitates at this. Uh, because why should Jesus be baptized? Think about it. Baptism is of, for this instance, is for repentance. Why does Jesus need to be baptized? From what does Jesus need to repent? And why should John be the one to baptize him? Really, it should be the other way around. And that's what, basically what he's saying. Jesus should be baptizing me. John thought. And it's interesting to see how at first John objected to the religious leaders being baptized because of their unworthiness of that. And now John hesitates at Jesus' baptism, not for Jesus' unworthiness, but His unworthiness to baptize Jesus. And I like how Jesus responds there. He says some interesting, just a few statements here really. The first statement's recorded in Matthew here, but it's, it's, it's got a lot into it. He says, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. And then He suffered. He doesn't disagree with John because John's correct. John is right. Yeah, no, he doesn't need to repent of anything. Yes, he is more righteous than John. And yes, he is worthier than John. 
And this probably is out of order. But what Jesus says basically means, even so, it must be this way. Suffer it to be so now. For thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. This is an interesting phrase, and it's earned a lot of attention from Bible scholars and teachers, and it probably means more than this. But I think that Jesus is saying, this is fitting. We're going to do it this way because this is fitting. This is appropriate. I'm not here to repent unto righteousness, but I'm here to fulfill all righteousness. See, Jesus came to be who we could not be. And He came to do what we could not do. Every part of His life was in perfect submission and harmony with the Father's will. And His baptism was in obedience to God's command, though He needed no repentance. At the cross, Jesus also suffered like no man could ever suffer as our perfect substitutionary sacrifice for sin. Grant Osborne observed here that He does not need to repent but by submitting to baptism, Jesus begins His messianic work by identifying with the human need and providing the means by which it can be accomplished. And the Bible tells us that as soon as Jesus came out of the water, that two things happened here. If you look down there in verse number, verse number 16, and Jesus, when He was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto Him, and He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon Him. And lo, a voice saying from heaven, saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. First, the sky opened up and the Spirit of God descends, looks, it says, like a dove and landed on Jesus. But then next, a voice comes from heaven that says, and I always imagine this in the sound of James Earl Jones, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. How many of you are thinking James Earl Jones, deep bass voice? It sounds a little blasphemous to say that, but that's, that's what I'm thinking right now. Finally, after over 300 years of silence, God speaks. And these two statements together come from two passages in the Psalms and in Isaiah that connect Jesus with three titles. First, with God's Son. Secondly, with God's Servant. And thirdly, as God's Spirit-filled, promised Messiah. We'll come back and look at that a little bit more tonight. You can read the verses in and pretty much make the, 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 the distinction yourself. So we see here that as Warren Wiersbe remarked, that John's baptism fulfills two purposes. First, it prepares the nation for Christ. But secondly, it presented Christ to the nation. As I said earlier, there's 30 years between chapter 2 and chapter 3. Really, if we read the Gospel of John, if we read the, the Gospel accounts in Mark and Luke, we see a lot of activity is going on around all of these events. There are things that Matthew leaves out that the other Gospels include. And there's a reason for this. And Matthew is, is painting a picture and bringing us along a certain path. And if you will, pointing out only certain road signs along that way to get us to a specific place. And so John here, his, uh, John is included here, his message here is pointing out the need for repentance. And he's calling the ancient Jews to do so as Jesus began his public earthly ministry. Right away, he'll go to the desert. We have the temptation in the wilderness by Satan. In chapter 5, he begins his Sermon on the Mount, probably the most famous sermon um, uh, in the Bible. Definitely uh, the best preached one because it's Jesus. Matthew has already established that Jesus is the King. And now he emphasizes that the King has arrived. 
and calls the reader to make necessary preparations. The king has come and gone, but he's promised to return again. Before he left, he established the church. Those who believe and who wait his return. And to them, he has given his spirit and entrusted with a message very similar to John's. For the unbeliever, the message here is a warning of judgment to come. But it's also an encouragement. That there is still time. However short it may be, there is still time to repent and avoid that judgment. But to the believer, the message is a reminder that God has not forgotten us. He is faithful to His promises. And He fulfills them in His perfect timing. Within this message, there is also an implication that though repentance is not forged by outward actions, it is revealed by it. True repentance demonstrates its change of mind by its change of behavior. And that's what John is trying to get us to understand here. Picture it. Matthew 1 and Matthew 2 got us to see who the King is. Jesus is the King. Now we get into Matthew chapter 3. The King has come. We fast forward all the way to the end of Matthew 2 and we know the King has left. But He's coming back. This is where the message applies to us today. We don't preach exactly the same message that John the Baptist preached, but one that is very similar. Repent. Change your mind toward God. True repentance then will turn those actions appropriately. We get the cart before the horse many times and we try to turn those actions first. And then we call, and we see this, the Pharisees did. We see people uh, frustrating at spinning their wheels because they just can't get it down right. But when we first turn and change our mind toward God and allow Him to do the change, it makes all the difference in the world. And it reminds us here. Yeah, the story kind of ended, but it's, it hasn't really ended at all. Matthew tells us the beginning and the end of the ministry of Jesus, but the ministry continues on through His Spirit in us. If you're sitting here this morning, you are not a Christian. This is the same message that He, that he tells the people there. He tells the Pharisees. He tells the Sadducees. It doesn't matter what your background is, how good or how bad it may be. You must repent. You must turn your, your thinking towards God. You must not think happy thoughts of God. This is not Peter Pan. This is thinking uh, the differently about your sin and thinking differently about who you are and about who God is and changing your, your belief about those things and saying, you know what, I'm a sinner and I, and, I, and I cannot do anything. It's agreeing with God. It's saying the same thing. That's why the Bible says here that they confess their sin. The word confess there simply means to say the same as. And, and that's, what, that's what we have to do. We come and we say, yes, what you said about me is right, God. And God, what you say about my sin is right, God. And God, what you say about the punishment for sin is right, God. I agree with that. I am in need of help. I need a Savior. And when we turn and we repent and we turn our minds back towards God, we see it evidence. We're going to come back tonight and look at these, these uh, four images here. And there's, they're powerful images. And they, and they really they really develop the story. But what we see here is that over time, true repentance 
is not forgotten about. But rather, it does something in the heart of the person, in the life of the person. And we see as the tree is a person and his actions are the fruit, we see true repentance revealing itself in a change of behavior, in true behavior. If you're, if you're, if you're a believer, that's a reminder to you. It's not like you need to say, okay, I believe, now I need to start doing good works. It, 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 if you're a believer, if you are a tree, you will start. We don't have to go out to the apple tree outside and say, hey, you need to be doing apples now. It does because it's an apple tree. If you're a true believer, that will come as we abide in Christ. But the, the reminder here is that God is doing these things in us. But it's, there is the implication here that my simple words, my simple act, my, my simple act of raising a hand at a church or coming forward in an aisle, down an aisle or, 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 or assigning a, a role on a church membership or, or putting an offering on a plate or putting myself in a pew every Sunday is not what God is looking for. The Israelites read Isaiah again as he, as he talks about how they had empty service. God says, I look on your heart and I see what happened there first. And he's not talking about your intentions. He's not talking about, well, you had, you met well. No, no, no. He's looking at, what are you, what are you looking at right now? Where, where, where did you turn? Have you still gone down the path as, as Isaiah tells us in chapter 53? We, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And God looks and he says, you're still on your own path or have we turned back and repented and said, God, I was wrong. That was, that was the wrong thing to do. And we repent and God sees those things. And then God says, okay, through that, I can give you the, the uh, ability, I can enable you to grow in grace. I can give you the ability to worship and to do the righteous deeds that we all know Christians are supposed to do. But if we try to do those on our own, we mess it up every time. This is John's message. This is what Matthew is preparing us for as we begin to really just shine the spotlight on Jesus for the next 20 or so chapters. And we listen to His message, and we listen to His teaching, and we try to understand the tricky parables that He writes, and sometimes He'll explain them to us, and other times we'll have to try it on our own through the Spirit's help, but it's all based on these truths right here at the very beginning. Who is Jesus and who am I? Jesus is the King. Have I repented? Am I a believer? Am I a repenter? Or am I an unrepenter? That's the question we must ask ourselves today. Because only then will the rest of the chapters make sense.